so let's go on back to the book of Hebrews. We finished up that chapter 9 last week, showing that Christ died once for all sin, for all time, that he doesn't have to be a continual sacrifice daily as was in the past, but his sacrifice is good for everyone, for all sins, forevermore except those, of course, who will simply not come under that blood. It's there available for any and everyone ultimately in their time of salvation. But some will simply refuse and will rebel against God in his ways and his truths and against him and as a result not have salvation. But it's there for those who are willing to listen and willing to respond. So let's go down to chapter 10. Uh, well, review verse 28 of the previous chapter first. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and of them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin to salvation. He was sinless, he will be sinless, and I think it implies here that he will offer salvation to those who through his blood are sinless. We cannot have salvation if we have sin. And since we are all human and all will sin, some at least, up until the time we die or are changed, then the only way he can offer salvation is that he forgive our sins right up until that moment. Because sin cannot be perpetrated for eternity. So he has to be willing to forgive our sins right up till that split second of change when we become sinless and cannot anymore sin. Once that salvation is granted. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereto perfect. But his can. We can go before God, having sinned, ask for forgiveness, and we thwart Satan every time we do that. Because he is there as the accuser of the brethren. God is very patient in even allowing Satan to go before his throne. Because he hates sin. He hates what sin has done. He hates the misery, the poverty, the frustration, the murder, the rape, the stealing, the lying, the mistrust, the insanity that pervades this earth. He wants peace and love and happiness and joy and cooperation. But breaking his laws has caused peace to disappear. And that's why we have war and famine and pestilence and disease increasingly, and it's going to get a whole lot worse. But those sacrifices were just a shadow of what was to come. They were a shadow of his sacrifice. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, verse 2, if they could bring us to peace, to safety, to salvation, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? But the point is, 
they had to be done until he came and died and could offer perfection and salvation. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. Now the implication here is that we should have no more conscience of sins, right? If we truly, in faith, believe that his sacrifice covers our sins, we should not be living with a guilty conscience. The blood of bulls and goats could not clean up the conscience. That was the problem. We should be able to move forward daily without a guilty conscience. That's what this is saying. Wouldn't it be nice, or won't it be nice, when we can reach that point where we have overcome and grown and we know that we are changing, and that we can have absolute faith in Christ and not be concerned about things that happened 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, or whatever. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, we still will, are, and will, to some degree or another, have to de deal with what's happened today or yesterday, which is fresh on our minds of things we might have said or done or thought, but we have to put those under the blood of Christ as well and not carry them around with us. It's hard to walk forward in faith when you're being held back by carrying sin on your back. There are a lot of people who do that. We've got to move past it. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, continually reminded of sin. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So they still bore those sins. That blood is not good enough. It took one who had been, had been God and became man and who was perfect and never sinned to be worth more than all our sins put together. They were reminded of their sins. Now what does Christ tell us? I will remove them as far as the east is from the west, and there will be no more remembrance of them. I'll never bring them to mind again. He removes it, then it's gone. The further we can divorce ourselves from our past mistakes, our past sins, our past difficulties, the more we can walk forward in faith and not let those be a deterrent to our moving forward. Yes, we have to deal with the present, certainly, every day. But we should be, at least be able to remove the burden of the past and not have to deal with it on a daily basis. Verse 5, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body have you prepared me. He didn't even speak to Israel when they came out of Egypt about sacrifice, it says in Jeremiah 7.22. That was added later because they simply would not keep his laws, so he added that burden 
of all those carnal washings and ordinances and sacrifices and various things they had to go through because they were rebellious. But now we don't have to do that because remember when we were repenting and approaching baptism and then were baptized? What did we do? We quit rebelling, didn't we? Or at least that's what we promised to do. We said, I accept you, I accept your way, I accept your rule, I accept your rules. I will not rebel against them anymore, but I will keep them all and live by every word of God. That was the vow, that was the compact, the covenant that we made with God when we were baptized. And when we came up out of that water, we should have felt cleansed. Clean, pure, white, without sin. Beautiful, huh? The only problem is that human nature is still there. And even though we vowed not to rebel anymore against God, we tend to do it. We'll come up against something that we just don't want to do or don't want to do now or can't give up or won't give up or whatever. We have difficulty as human beings living up to our promise. Would that we were God, who is not weak, who is not wavering, who really believes with all his heart that his way of living is the best way to live. And he has set himself, and he is so strong that he will never go against the policies that he has set. Therefore, he never, ever, sins and thought or indeed. Everything he does is perfectly legal within what he has set himself to do. Not only that, he dislikes what has happened through Satan and mankind on this earth so much that he is not even tempted to sin, not even tempted to do the wrong thing hard for us to understand, but we have to walk that direction in faith so that we can become that way. See, we understand in our minds, we understand mentally, we understand academically that God's way is the best way to live, but we're still dealing with human emotions, feelings, appetites, desires, and temptations that are so difficult. It is so tempting to be vain, greedy, selfish, envious, or whatever. Those things happen. It is so easy to want to put ourselves ahead of and above others, even though we understand, Thessalonians says, esteem others better than ourselves. We so easily put them down with our tongues and put ourselves above them. That's ego, that's vanity, that's selfishness is what that is. We get our feelings hurt so very easily, wear them out on the ends of our sleeves. That's just selfishness and vanity also. So somebody else is imperfect, why should that offend us? So somebody else says the wrong thing or puts us down. 
what does it do? It causes us to swell up in pride, vanity, and ego, and selfishness, and look down upon them because they are not yet perfect. But we are so hurt and so betrayed in our own selfish little minds and emotions. It's so easy for that to happen to us. So we still have a way to go. But that doesn't mean we ought to quit. Let's read on. So he prepared a body for Christ that was to be sacrificed, that was more valuable than all bulls and goats put together. You prepared this for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have had no pleasure. God has not taken any enjoyment or any pleasure in all the animal sacrifices that have ever been done. He only put them on them because of their rebellion. You know, God will take no pleasure in the end time troubles and difficulties that devastate most of mankind. It is a necessary evil that must be done to get people's attention. I hope he has our attention now and we don't have to go through that. Because he says, if we will obey him, and pray that we will be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. They're not very far off now, getting closer every day that goes by. But we have been promised an opportunity to, to, an opportunity to escape them. Verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, all through the Old Testament are prophecies that Christ would come. To do your will, O God, his express purpose to come here was to do God's will every moment of his life as an example to us and so that that perfection could override our imperfections. How great he was. How many sins have been committed on the face of this earth in the last 6,000 years? Billions and trillions because every one of us have sinned uncountable times. How much is his worth? There have probably been 50, 60 billion people who have lived on the earth. And each one of them probably sinned millions of times. But his sacrifice, his life was worth more than all of that put together. How important is he? Wow. Wow. Verse 8, above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, you would not. Neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. That Those laws of carnal washings and ordinances and circumcision and all of that stuff, blood of bulls and goats, was added as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The Ten Commandments were not part of that because they are the code to live by. And Christ summarized them by saying, Love me, or love the Father, and love mankind. Summarizes the Ten Commandments, which really are a summary of God's way of life to start with. They can, they can be brought down not only to ten, but to two principles. Those were in effect long before sacrifices, carnal washings, and ordinances were ever established. So it was those laws that were not good. And God says right here, they weren't good. See, the Jews were still impressed by animal sacrifices. 
They were still impressed by Colonel Washington's ordinances and following every jot and tittle of that law, which was not really done away. Sacrifice is not done away to this day, is it? It's just that the sacrifice of bulls and goats is not necessary. The sacrifice has been changed. Now Christ's one sacrifice is worth more than all the bulls and goats on earth if we sacrificed every one of them. Because those were not a pleasurable thing to God and they were certainly a burden to man. They're only there to bring us as a schoolmaster to Christ. He says right here, they were laws that weren't good, that God took no pleasure in. And certainly, I would not take pleasure in it if we had to go back to that system today. I'm thankful that through him I can go to the Father and talk to him as my Father in the name of the one who made it possible. Even that one thing, is worth more than all those sacrifices ever, is that when he died, it opened the way to talk to God the Father. And no one could do that before then. Couldn't talk to God. We take it for granted. But we can approach his throne. But it is only through Christ that we can do that. The Jews needed to understand that to the very fiber of their beings. The salvation did not come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, but it came through Christ. For sin you would, would not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, verse 9, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. He's repeating what he said above. You gave me a body, and you sent me here to do your will. That's repeated. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. We've already read that the first is not done away, but it's old, like an old garment. You know, after you've worn a garment for a long, long time, you really hesitate to just throw it out, but sooner or later, at some point, it served its purpose, and you finally throw it away. Well, the old covenant has waxed old. The new has not been offered to everyone yet, so the old is still around so that this earth might be judged by it. But once that is done, the new will be offered. I submit that the old covenant will continue at least into the millennium for some time because animal sacrifice will be reinstituted then, as we see in Ezekiel and Isaiah and other places. Why? Because until those people who either come through the tribulation, well, that's who we're talking about, the ones who live through, will still be under the old until they are offered the new. And it may be that for some time into the millennium, they will have to have a schoolmaster to lead them and teach them and guide them until they will accept the Father and the Son. See, they will have accepted the world's Jesus and died believing that and the plagues and everything that is to come. So when they come up out of the ground, they'll have a false Jesus still in mind. Whoever the end time Jesus is who comes and claims to be 
the true Christ. It'll take some time to educate that out of them. That's why our children will have such an incredible responsibility and opportunity. If they're not grown and baptized in this age, they'll live on into the millennium because they will have been protected through the sanctification offered through their parents' obedience. 1 Corinthians 7 covers that very well. where It says that the child is sanctified by the parents' obedience. So our children will be protected because their parents are obeying God. Therefore, they will live physically into the world tomorrow, and they already know about God, don't they? The true God. They know about the true Christ. They know what the Bible is about. They may not be old enough to be converted and mature enough to have turned their lives over to God yet, but they have a tremendous opportunity to be the leaders of society in the world tomorrow and help bring peace to this earth as physical leaders. Well, the, the outlook for our children is not bleak at all. Tremendous opportunity ahead. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You could offer a bull and goat, but it didn't take away your sin. What's the blood of a goat worth? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He didn't take over right away, did he? He came, he lived perfectly, he died in faith, he was resurrected, sits at the right hand of God, and now he is waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world, and this world reflects the leadership and rulership of Satan with all that is going on in it that is ungodly and painful and miserable. And it's going to get worse before it gets better because Satan is going to be very, very angry. He's going to try to kill everyone who obeys God. And only through God's protection will we make it through it. But we can count on that, can't we? Because he said, if you'll obey me, I will protect you. You don't have to worry. And his enemies will be made his footstool. We will be made rulers with him as kings and priests in the world tomorrow. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are set apart, that are sanctified, that are set apart as the bride of Christ. Sin will no longer be laid to our account hard to realize that even before we sin sometimes we're maybe leaning that direction but God counts us clean through the sacrifice of Christ which we ask for on a daily basis so he has set us aside and counts us clean right now he does not count us as sinners the only way that we will come back under that is if we rebel against his way, fall away from him, lose the faith, the trust that we have in him, and go a different way. 
Otherwise, he looks upon us as cleansed on a daily basis through Christ. If we muck up the day, then we can be forgiven and given a new chance, a new start, a clean slate every morning, as Lamentation says. And it's talking about the church there. So he counts us clean. When Satan goes to accuse us before God, he is turned away. No, that's covered. Verse 15, whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before. Let me back up just a moment and make a little more comment on that. Do we count ourselves as clean? Do we think of ourselves that way? We need to because it says right there, Matthew 15, I mean in John 15, 16, 17, you are clean through Christ. God sends us out clean every morning. And he knows we'll make mistakes, but he still counts us as clean under the blood of Christ. He's going to tell us that that should give us some boldness. We should not be whining and weak and insipid when we go before God. Now, here's the problem. Once we accept that we are clean, and we should. Then it's hard not to become self-righteous and think, well, I'm clean, I'm sanctified, I'm set aside for salvation. And it's so easy for human nature then to say, I'm better than you. It's easy to go into that other ditch. One ditch is, oh, I'm such a sinner which prevents overcoming, which pre prevents growth, because when we're wallowing in self-pity, we're not going to grow and overcome, are we? If you are in self-pity, you will not grow. You will not overcome, because you become comfortable with self-pity. And sorry for me, oh, I'm so sorry for me. That stunts growth. It stops overcoming. That's the one ditch. So crawl out of that one. Take responsibility for life and for your actions and your thoughts. Overcome that which needs to be overcome, but then don't get self-righteous at the ones that are still in the self-pity ditch. One is as bad as the other. The middle road is to feel cleansed by Christ overcome, grow and change, and come boldly to his throne in order to receive help to overcome, and then not look down upon others because you have overcome. That is a fine and very difficult line to follow. God tells us to walk that line. There was a song called I Walk the Line. They made a movie out of some years back now. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Well, we're Christ's, so we need to walk that line to be 
the right kind of bride before him. You read Proverbs 31, that bride there does not wallow in self-pity, and oh, I'm such a sinner, and I'm so bad, and blah, 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 and I'm too weak to overcome. No, she's busy doing what needs to be done, taking care of her family, taking care of those around her, being sure that everyone is well-fed, well-cared for, and has everything they need. She's busy serving, giving, loving, helping. That's where we need to be. And then, as we accomplish that, we need to have pity, compassion, feeling, concern, support the weak, strengthen those who need strength, help the poor. Whatever needs to be done, we need to do that. Now, Christ is not self-righteous, is he? He didn't wallow in self-pity while he was here on the earth. Oh, I can't get married. Oh, I can't. Uh, go out and make millions of dollars. No, I can't do this. No, I can't do that. He simply lived the right way. And then he gave his life, which was worth more than everyone else's, so that everyone else might have forgiveness and mercy and love and life eternal. To this day, he is not at all self-righteous. He's still concerned and helpful and willing to do anything for anybody who will come to him and ask for help and do it within the will of God. But he does not look down upon sinners. In fact, he is our high priest who can go to God, and we read last week, he is there for the express purpose of making intercession for us. He has no holier-than-thou, I'm better-than-you, attitude at all. Well, the church is full of that today. Our organization is better than your organization, therefore I'm better than you. Don't even speak to those. They're the unwashed Laodiceans. Now, some don't say that outrightly. Some do. Others only do it by where their nose is pointed. Just a little uppity above the others. We can't be that way. I submit that you, to you that we're here hearing a very strong message because God wants us to overcome, to grow, to be like him, to be worthy of the sacrifice of Christ, and then to serve and help his remnant that he will put together. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for others. And the sooner we understand and adopt that, the better off we're going to be. We're not better than anyone else. Witness problems we still have, each and every one of us. And the interactions and the family atmosphere that we should have, sometimes we fall short of. And even though we may be family, we may love each other dearly here, we still commit infractions with one another, we still get our feelings hurt, we still hurt the feelings of others. We still put ourselves above others. We're still very, very human. Mr. Armstrong understood a long time ago that personal salvation wasn't what it was all about. Now, it is included in the package. But he stated over and over that we had been called to do a work to fulfill a job. 
and that if we would serve and give and fulfill that role properly, God would take care of us. But what happened to us? We became selfish. We became spiritually lazy and fat. unwilling truly to serve and give and be a part of what he wanted us to be. We became selfish and self-indulgent. And therefore he had to spew us out and now he expects us to return to him with absolute fervency and love and make him the central thing in our lives so that our lives revolve totally around him. It's not to revolve around this world, the things of this world. But he says, if we will come out of her, my people, respond to what he is trying to get across, that he will then protect us and help us and let us escape these things that are coming. We're here to do a job. We're not just here to save our hides. If we think that, we have the wrong attitude and we're endangering our status with God and with each other not just here for ourselves. We're here to prepare ourselves to be of help to the rest of his people and not to lift ourselves up and think we're better than they are or more spiritual than any of them because we're not. So let's not go in that ditch of self-righteousness once we come out of wallowing in self-pity. Yes, we should be bold. Yes, we should be Thankful that God has given us knowledge and information ahead of time that has not been open to the rest of the church yet. Did he give me, did he give you this information about what we needed to do because we were better than anyone else in the church? I think not. I'm no better than anyone else anywhere in the church. You aren't either. He called us here because he felt that we could be worked with, we could be molded and made into a people that could be of help to him. That's why we're here, not because we're better. <coughs> so let us move forward in preparing ourselves to be a Proverbs 31 bride of Christ giving, serving, helping, promoting that attitude among ourselves. And if we can, in a small group, learn to do that, then it says when a bigger group comes, we'll be faithful in much. For faithful in small things, we'll be faithful in much. God has to start, start things small, because if he starts them large, they get out of hand, and... Worldwide, started very small, but as it became large and financially prosperous, it waxed weak spiritually. We can't allow ourselves to go back there. That's what we're coming away from. So let's recognize that he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. If we've been baptized, we have been set apart as holy and righteous. And we need to live up to what God has told us we are. 
when Satan goes before him, he says, no, wait a minute, that one set aside is holy and righteous under the blood of my son. Take your accusations elsewhere. Verse 15, whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Eternal, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. We've already read that in chapter 8, verse 10 to 12. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He remembers your sins no more. Sometimes you go before God and you feel so bad and you're wallowing in that self-pity ditch we were talking about. So you'll start thinking about things you did or things you thought a long, long time ago or that maybe your mate or your neighbor or somebody's reminded you of or whatever. And you remember and maybe even take to God something that he no longer remembers. <laughs> Why bring up to him something he's forgotten about? He's sitting there saying, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. Why are you bringing it up? Let me ask ourselves a question. Do we have faith in the blood of Christ? That's what this boils down to. Do we trust in that blood? Or do we still carry around things that happened six months or a year or six years or 60 years ago. If he doesn't, why should we? Isn't the sin of the day sufficient? Why do we have to worry about the past? He has given us the new covenant. He has written his laws in our hearts. Therefore, it's not right to bring up something to him he's forgotten. How do you like it? When something you've been trying to forget for the last 20 or 30 years, somebody brings up. Someone was telling me just recently, they went to a family reunion. And everybody got basically into confessing all the things that they had done, some of which probably the family knew about and some of which they didn't know anything about. But they had started having this big confession time. That really helps. You did that, and all that starts family fights right there. You're the one that did that, <laughs> you know? Now, is it a happy time to talk about, I mean, for the one that's being talked about, is it a happy time? Maybe a happy time for everybody that's jumping on them, but it's certainly not happy for you to be reminded of something you'd done a long time ago that you're ashamed of. So when that happens, it's time to say, hey, I'm under the blood of Christ, go away. Or sometimes we start feeling self-pity and we want to bring on up our own past. God doesn't want to hear about it. The evil you've done today is enough to go to God about. You don't have to worry about the past. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's not talking about in the kingdom of God, that's talking about now for those of us who are living under the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is here, it says, as a witness to us. 
Not then, now. So their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. It's done. His, Christ, his blood covered it. There's no more remission for it, so why bring it up? If it isn't already forgiven, it's not going to be forgiven. But once it's been wiped out, it's gone. People had no right, whatever, to bring up past sins of Herbert Armstrong if they knew what they were. Some of it was speculation. Some of it may have been true. And some may have had proof it was true. So what? It was under the blood of Christ. It needs no more remission. It had been forgotten. There are still people who won't forgive him for something he did 30, 40, 50 years before he died. How intransigent. How hard. How cold. How nasty are people that they won't let someone sin that was perpetrated 60, 70, 80 years ago now go away. What kind of attitude is someone in who will write books about someone else's sins when they have come under the blood of Christ? You will hear sins of each other and me bandied around here. When will we turn loose of each other's sins and back off? Are we more righteous than God Almighty who will not remember sin, but we perpetuate it? When will we repent and grow up? And trust in the blood of our Savior. And believe Him when he says, your sins and mine are forgiven. It is the glory of God to cover sin. But men love to dig in it. Whenever will we get over being self-righteous, egocentric, and selfish, and perpetuating the sins of others? Our Savior died, brethren, that our sins be forgiven. We are in rebellion against Almighty God when we bring up each other's past. Can we understand that? Can we get it? Why did Christ say, when I come to the earth, will I find faith? Maybe we interpret faith as, I believe in God and I'll, believe it, I'll be saved someday. Is that what faith is about? It may include that, but that's only a very small part of it. We're talking about the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, 
God with us, Emmanuel. Is he going to be with us when he forgives our sin and his Father does and we won't? You see, if we're carrying our sin or other people's sins around with us in our minds and emotions, God does not want to be near that. Can we grasp that? God does not want to be near sin. And if we perpetuate and hold sin in a package somewhere on our, in our mind or body and won't turn loose of it, be it ours or others, God does not want to be around that. He does not like that attitude. So it's not just a matter of you going to God and asking forgiveness for your sins, but you're perpetuating other people's sins, and he doesn't want to be around that because that's what's in your mind and heart. So you not only have to accept his blood for your sins, you have to accept it for the sins of others. He was accepted of the Father for the sins of everyone for all time. Now, do we believe that? It is a truism. It is stated here plainly in Scripture in black and white. Now, if someone is continuing in sin, we need to do all we can to help them through it, over it, and away from it. Not condemn them for it. Whatever it might be. Now, maybe we're not supposed to eat with them or company with them if they are continuing in some major sin. But at the same time, we're told not to ignore them but to help them. Now, is that our attitude? It's God's attitude. It's Christ's attitude. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. I don't think we get it. I know we don't get it. If we got it, we would not be discussing Herbert Armstrong's sins or each other's sins. We would forget them. We would let them go away in the blood of Christ and be washed and cleansed. I'm spending a little time on this. Because somewhere, some way along the line, we need to get it. I don't know how many hundreds of times it's been said and how many different ways. It's been said hundreds of times in Scripture. But somehow we want to be hearers only and not doers. The reality is, God doesn't want to live among sinners. So he sent his son, that sin might be forgiven, so that he could live with us and come and dwell with us and be our God and we be his people. That's what he wants. He wants to give us salvation and joy and hope. 
Well, if that's his attitude, we need to grant it to each other, don't we? Don't we? Our lives will be a whole lot better when we finally do. We'll be a lot happier, and we'll help people a whole lot more. I think it's something we need to spend some time praying and thinking about, maybe going back over these scriptures at home and see if we can really get it because it is foreign to human nature to do as Christ did. He was worth more than all of us put together, and yet he gave more than any of us, and he gave to all of us. The spirit of service, spirit of giving. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And sometimes we continue on really not knowing what we're doing, really not grasping, really not getting it. And so we continue to backbite, to hurt, to gossip, to bring up people's past, their sins, our attitudes toward them, and not ever let them get up off the floor. That's not the attitude of God. Verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. It's been done, it's been taken care of. All right, then what should the attitude be? Verse 19, having therefore, or have therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Emmanuel. We need to be very careful with the use of the name Emmanuel. It means God with us. It was a name that was reserved for those at the end to use. It says, you shall call his name Joshua, or some form of that, but they will call his name Emmanuel. Because God is going to be with a certain group of people at the end. And they can truly say, God, with us. That is a name that has to be applied at a certain time, in a certain way, by a certain people whom God is willing to be with. That's why it says, they shall, in the future, call his name Emmanuel. Now, if God is going to be with us, we have to have the same attitude he has. We can only use Emmanuel in faith, if we are doing what is necessary so that he can be with us. Now perhaps we can use it to a degree hoping that he will be with us more fully in the future, knowing that if we have the right attitude, he is with us now, but not fully yet. So in part it is a prophecy, in part it is a fact that he will come and dwell with men. It's in Zechariah, it's in Isaiah, it's in all, many, many places. And it's not talking about the millennium, it's talking about just prior to the millennium. That God will be with a certain group of people. 
those who will with their whole hearts fervently serve him and come to have his attitudes toward each other and toward sin. He loved sinners, but he does not love sin. He loved sinners so much he gave his life for us. But he also, in giving that life, absolved our sin so that we are apart from sinners. Now, isn't that what he said he was back here? Where was it? Verse 26 of chapter 7. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. If he is to be with us, we have to be separate from sin. And we cannot go back and undo what we did the other day or 50 years ago. can't do that. So he has to separate us from that sin through his blood, and we have to daily bring ourselves into the subjection of Christ, as Paul did. It wasn't easy. He said the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. The things he didn't want to do, he did. He had a daily, constant battle against temptation to go with the flesh. Never ended. But he did say toward the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I've overcome a lot. And I know I'll be in the kingdom of God. So what is to be our attitude in all this? Verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Emmanuel. We're not to go whining, sulking, and in self-pity. We're to go there with boldness. How can you be bold if you're carrying your sins on your back? You can't. You have to go boldly and can go boldly only if you believe that your sins have been forgiven. How do you just go to another human being who you think may have an attitude about you over something you've done or something you are? It's hard, isn't it, to go with confidence, to go with boldness, when they already, you know they already have this attitude about you. Well, it's the same thing with God. If you think he's a glowering, mean, hateful God up there, and you have to go sniveling and snuffling and in self-pity and whining before God, you don't, you don't get it yet. You don't understand and believe yet that your sins are forgiven and that therefore you're clean and white and pure and you have a right through Christ, to go boldly with confidence and power to God. Brethren, we have that right. Not in thinking we're great, not in being self-righteous, but in understanding that He was righteous, and He forgives us, and the Father forgives us through Him, and therefore we can be bold. How bold are we? Can we go to God expecting an answer? Knowing 
And if we do the will of God, He will give it to us. Didn't Christ tell us in John 15, 16, and 17, You are my friends. I will withhold nothing from you. And if you will ask it, according to my will and in my name, I will give it to you. Now you've prayed a lot of prayers, and so have I, and we haven't been given what we wanted, right? <coughs> we still do, don't we? We still ask for healing. We still ask for various kinds of blessings. And they aren't always fulfilled, are they? Now, what's the problem? It isn't with God. He never reneges on a promise. Therefore, the problem must be with you and me. We must not be asking always according to his will. We may be asking selfishly. Or we may be asking with the wrong attitude and the wrong approach. And therefore, it doesn't happen. Now, he has guaranteed us if we will turn to him with our whole heart, we will find him in Jeremiah, right, and other places. Well, we must not have turned with our whole heart yet. It's the only conclusion I could come to that we're still reserving for ourselves. We're still being selfish. We're still, we're still withholding forgiveness and mercy to others. Now, what did Christ himself say? To the merciful, I will be merciful. To the forgiving, I will be forgiving. But to you who are not merciful and you who will not forgive others, I will not forgive you. How forgiving and merciful are we? How cutting and mean and nasty behind people's back are we? and to their face sometimes. You see, if we don't have the attitude we ought to have, then God says, I'm not going to give you what you want. Not only that, he wants to give us salvation. It is his good pleasure to give us salvation. How do you, how do you define good pleasure? Well, just as a human being... I would define good pleasure as a really tender, succulent steak and maybe a glass of red wine or a beer with it. That would give me good pleasure physically. Which is just one example of many things that give me good pleasure. And when God says it is his good pleasure to give us salvation, he means that. It's like a girl getting a new dress that she's been watching and wanting and saving for for three months. Oh, that's physically good pleasure to put that on and have it fit and be able to wear it home or somewhere. God, in other words, is thrilled to give us salvation. Why are we whining and crying? <laughs> Aren't we both? after he's made those kinds of promises. We just don't have the right attitude yet. We haven't done what we need to do yet. If we are not bold with God, 
We have to come to be that way. We have to come to be that way because that's what the Scripture is telling us here. He says, you should have boldness to go before God. Now, I'm bolder at times than I am at others. But I need to be in righteousness, true righteousness, bolder. But how will that boldness come? That boldness will come in coming to have the attitude that Christ has toward others, coming to have his mind, coming to believe and walk the way he walks. That is how that boldness will come. As long as we are selfish, as long as we are egocentric and vain, we cannot have the right kind of boldness before God. Now, the Pharisees had boldness before God, didn't they? Oh Lord, I have given so much. Oh Lord, I have helped the widow. Oh Lord, I have done this and I have done this, that. Bless me now herewith, they would say. Now they had boldness that was based on self-righteousness. That kind of boldness will do you no good because God just, it turns his stomach. He says, I don't pay any attention to the Pharisees, but to this man will I look, one who is contrite and of a meek and humble spirit and trembles at my word. He would rather listen to the sinner who beats his breast and will not even raise his head to God more so than he will the Pharisee. Well, is that sending us a mixed message here? We just need to be mumbling and eating worms before God all the time. Because that isn't boldness, is it? No, what the sinner needed to do who couldn't raise his face to God is change, quit sinning, and come to have boldness because he believes Christ died for him. And as he obeys, his boldness gains in strength. Now, we may have started out sinners. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that mean we ought to remain sinners? Should we be arrogant and self-righteous and egotistical and selfish and self-centered for the rest of our lives just because we started out that way? God forbid. No, we're supposed to change and grow and overcome and become like Christ was. Separate ourselves from our sins. and have boldness as a result. There's got to be a transformation from that one who can't lift his head to God. Now there's a time still and yet when we need to go before God and not be able to lift our head up in the sense that we recognize our own weaknesses, we recognize our own sins. So we do need to pray. And there are times I certainly don't feel like lifting my head and praying boldly when I know I've just thought or said or done something I shouldn't have done, said, or thought. But that doesn't mean I need to become whining and in self-pity either. It means I need to come recognizing my sin, feeling ashamed about it, but knowing that if I bow my head and ask forgiveness, it will be granted.
there is a time to lift holy hands and pray, as the Bible says. With boldness, there's a time to hang our head and pray in shame, and yet at the same time expecting to be forgiven. So there's no room ever for whining and self-pity, see? There's either boldness knowing we're doing what we should be doing and asking God for help to do better and more and be thankful. There's prayers of thanksgiving in the Bible where you can lift your head to God in thankfulness and lift holy hands. There's a time to recognize sin, bow your head and say, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. But when you get up off your knees, and when you do lift your head up, you should feel forgiven. Walking forward in faith, knowing you're clean before God. How many times have we gone and whined at God and gotten up off our knees and still been in a whining attitude? We didn't accomplish anything. Get on your knees, pray for forgiveness, get up and walk forward in faith, knowing God has forgiven you and Satan has no ammunition, and you can be bold. <clears throat> Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holy of holies, God the Father, we can go there boldly. Or, as my margin says, have liberty to enter into the holiest by the blood of Emmanuel. We are free to go to God. Now, even liberty implies strength. Free to do so. Able to do so. We live in a land where we have bragged all our lives about living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's not so anymore, but that's an attitude we've had. And we've become self-righteous in it to the point that the rest of the world can't stand us anymore because of our arrogance. We've brought that upon ourselves. But we do need to be feel free and at liberty. Well, how can you feel free and at liberty if you're carrying guilt around? You can't. So boldness or liberty could fit. Verse 20, by a new and living way. Not supposed to live the old way, but a new living way. Which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. His flesh cut the veil in two. And having an high priest over the house of God. Not only was the way open to the Father, but now we also have Christ at his right hand as a high priest who is an intercessor and a mediator for us. So that if the Father himself said, oh, wait a minute, that's just too much. Christ is there to say, no, Father, I was there. I went through it. I know what it's like. Please have mercy. So you not only have the Father there who is willing to forgive and wants to, but you have a high priest who lived here like we have lived, who is making intercession for you. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We were baptized, our sins were forgiven, our conscience should be clean, and that is a daily sacrifice that continues forever, day by day. It isn't that we go to Passover every year and have all the sins of the past year forgiven. Is that the way we approach it? That I go to Passover and all my sins of this past year are forgiven. Well, I would hope that day by day through that year we had prayed and our sins had been forgiven. He doesn't just, God doesn't just throw them all in a basket and bunch them up for Passover time. It's not the way He does it. He forgives us day by day. When we go to Passover, we're there to commemorate and to remember specifically what he did, lest we forget it, that it is the starting part of salvation, that one come and die for our sins, and that we drink that blood and that, I mean that water and that wine, I'll get it right eventually, that bread and that wine to remember what he's done for us, both physically and spiritually. And you do feel clean when you walk out having done that. Well, that's good, but we should feel clean every day. That's just an annual remembrance. So let us draw near daily, I think is implied here, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, not doubting, not wondering if our sin is forgiven. I'm not saying, boy, I don't know whether you could forgive that or not. I'm not sure you forgave that one, whatever it was. And we as people, you know, we're willing to forgive people some things, aren't we? But there's other things that are so bad in our minds they could never be forgiven. Well, I'll forgive you this. You know, you stepped on my toe the other day. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Boy, if you did that, whoo, I'll never forgive that. I have a long memory of things like that. It's the way humans are. No. Whatever you've done, what man thinks of you means absolutely nothing. What man thinks of you means absolutely nothing. Don't let it bother you. Now, if they're right, overcome it, whatever it is. But it is only God's opinion that matters. If somebody thinks you're the foulest, most evil, rotten thing on earth, so what? It really doesn't matter. If God has forgiven you through the blood of Christ, his opinion is the only one that counts because he's the one that can give you life eternal. People who speak against you can't give you anything. Now, the way to throw coals of fire up on their head is not to pay any attention to them. So what? You got that opinion. Maybe I did do what you said. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I did. So what? God's forgiven me. In other words, let them know by walking ahead with full assurance in the blood of Christ that their opinion is less than nothing. They won't like that. 
they think their opinion of you is very important. Otherwise, they wouldn't have that opinion. They'd have a different one. So they think their opinion means something. No, it doesn't. Pass it off. Water off a duck's back. So what? Just your opinion? That doesn't mean a thing to me. Because that'll put them in their place. Now, that doesn't mean we should be arrogant and self-righteous. It just simply means that Christ died for my sins. If you think I'm, if you want to carry them around, that's your burden. That's your problem. But don't talk to me about it. Because I've been forgiven and I'm going to walk forward in full assurance of faith. Having my heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. You know, when you're really, really dirty and you get in the shower and you feel all that filth and grime just washing off your body, it's a good feeling. I love showers because I get dirty almost every day. Every day, not just almost. And it feels good to just have the body physically cleansed. Well, spiritually, it's the same way to know that we have a Savior, to believe it. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. He said, I'll forgive your sins. He meant it. I'll remove them as far as the east is from the west. He meant it. He didn't intend for us to walk around under a cloud. He wants us to have spiritual sunshine and feel good about being alive and about having an opportunity to live forever in peace and happiness and prosperity. He wants us to feel good about that. He wants our children to feel good that if their parents obey and they do what they ought to do, they will be protected and live on into the millennium and have every blessing that any human being could ever desire. We need to have that approach. and hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. To feel and know that God wants to give us salvation, He will give us salvation, all we have to do is walk His way as He walked and have His attitude. And He can't help Himself. He has to forgive. He wants to forgive. That's different than human beings who don't want to forgive. They want to hang on. It's not right. Verse 24, what about our attitude? We should feel assured and strong and faithful and believing. Walk forward in strength, trust, faith, belief. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not only should we feel assured about ourselves, but we should also begin to spread that attitude to provoke others to love and to good works. To help them, assist them, strengthen them any way we can. Love them. Provoke, oh, provoke means to stir up, 
In a larger sense, the word provoke means irritate. When we say, you're provoking me, then we're irritating, aren't we? Now, that isn't bad. (laughs) Yeah, if we're feeling irritated, that's not a good feeling. Don't get me wrong. But how is a pearl made? Grain of sand gets in the oyster, and it irritates that oyster. And the oyster then begins to form a film around that grain of sand so that the irritation will stop. And as it grows and grows and gets bigger and becomes a pearl of great beauty, great price, it started as an irritation. Now, you know, we can be going on through life and someone in the right attitude of love and consideration for us might tell us, well, you need to do this. Well, that's an irritation, isn't it? Telling you you're not all right, that you lack something, is an irritation to any human being. None of us likes to admit we're wrong. We don't want to admit we're not perfect. Even though we know it ourselves, we certainly don't want anyone else to say it. Just like I've seen women, talk to women, counsel with women many, many years ago, many of them, who could sit there and call their husband any name you want to call a man, as long as it was they that were doing it. But the minute you open your mouth and says, you're right, he's a jerk, oh boy, she's all over you for what she just said. You see, it's okay as long as it's us. But if somebody else thinks it or says it, whoa! So it's the right kind of irritation. You know, you're doing well, but you should do this too. Oh, a little bit of an irritation. But if it stimulates pearls, if it stimulates growth, then it's the right kind of irritation. So when we provoke or irritate one another in the right way, it should produce pearls. It should produce beauty, spiritually. Now, if we provoke each other in a put-down way to discourage, then that's the wrong kind of irritation. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some is. We get our feelings hurt. We feel ashamed or whatever. Or we have a disagreement on something. So I will withdraw myself. Because what? When we come to that attitude, it's because we think we're better than someone else. We have better understanding than they We are spiritually better than they. They should not think badly of us. It is ego, it is selfishness, and it is self-righteousness when we withdraw ourselves. Because by withdrawing yourself, you're saying, by doing that, I do not want to be with you. Why would you not want to be with you? Because your ego... Your selfishness has been hurt. You're in self-pity. And on some level, you think you're better 
than those that you do not want to be around or with or assemble with. That's the bottom line. That attitude has to be repented of. If we are truly humble, if we are truly contrite, then we would want to be around those who might help us out of it. And at the same time, we need to be sure we're willing to help too. In Corinth, they went from one ditch to the other, which is what we're talking about today, really. There was the man taken in a sexual sin there. And everybody was just kind of laughing and saying, oh yeah, uh, getting along with it. They were used to that in Corinth. They were new Christians. It was okay. It was an incestuous situation, not even a natural one, but incestuous. And they were tolerating it. And Paul said, you've got to put that sin out. Put that person out. Turn them over to the devil till they repent. All right. So when they turned him over to the devil, then they had the devil's attitude toward him. So when the man did give up the sin and repented, then they had drawn themselves up in self-righteousness and said, well, you're a sinner, we're better than you. And that, sex sins, is one that we simply, as human beings, just don't want to forgive. Probably the worst. And they fell into that trap. Is a sex sin worse than idolatry? We put things before God every day, don't we, ourselves? There's no sin worse than that. Now that kind of sin has more emotional impact on us, perhaps, and that's one reason we have trouble with it. But they who had been so loose that way suddenly became so self-righteous, and even though the man had just stopped it and changed it, now they wouldn't accept him back. So Paul had to write them another letter and say, straighten up, you self-righteous jerks. Didn't say in quite those words, but that was the intent. We're to provoke to love and to good works and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That, rec that shows a wrong attitude and approach when we withdraw. It is utter selfishness, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're getting closer and closer to the time that the end of this age is coming, the trouble is coming to the earth, and we don't want to see each other go into that, right? I don't want to see any of you go into the tribulation. I don't want to go there myself. I want to see us protected from that. That's why I preach as strongly as I do. That's why I will not let it slip from us, remind us weekly what we need to do. And we need to do it with each other through the week. It isn't just for the ministers to shout and yell and rant and rave at us. We should be provoking one another to love and to good works and exhorting each other daily as we talk with one another, encourage each other to go God's way and not to give up, to hold fast that which we believe and know that God's promises are sure 
And if we will obey his words, we will be protected. And we can walk forward in faith knowing that. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. If we begin to turn away and lose the trust and belief in God, and so we say it doesn't matter, then there's no more sacrifice for sin. You can fall away. You're not once saved, always saved. Christ even warned specifically about that, didn't he? He says, some will come at the end and say, well, our Lord delays his coming. This is taking longer than I thought it would. We've had gun lap after gun lap. I'm getting tired. I guess he's delaying his coming. I might as well eat and drink with the drunken and begin to smite a fellow servant. Christ said, don't go there. He said, it won't be the echoing again of the hills. It will happen. We're getting to the point where it is there. It is here. It is coming. It's not just echoing anymore. The world condition is such that it can be seen now. It's close. Twenty, thirty years ago, America was still respected. Well, let's go thirty or forty years. <laughs> Maybe not twenty anymore. Now we're hated more than any nation on earth, by almost the whole population of the earth. Things have changed. They want to see us stomped into the mud now. They hate us and our arrogance and self-righteousness and ego and our policing the world and bombing them. They hate it. And they're coming after us soon. We see the end approaching. We're not to say, he delays his coming, I'll eat and drink with the drunken, I'll do what I want to do, and I'll smite my fellow servant and have an attitude about him. No. But a certain, so there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. The trouble's coming. We better remain faithful and strong and assured and provoke each other to love and good works, lest any fail and go into this trouble that's coming. We have a chance to escape. We need to take it. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and has done despite to the Spirit of grace. After all the forgiveness that God has given us and the mercy he's shown, if we turn from him now, there's no more forgiveness for our sin because we've kicked him in the face after all that he's done. Now, the world has a different accounting, but we have known, we have believed, we have understood we can't kick him in the face now. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, says the Eternal. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To know God, to understand him, to be forgiven, to be 
have his sacrifice applied for us, and then turn from him and walk away from his people and his church, his salvation, it's a fearful thing because God will execute vengeance. But call to remembrance. So don't go there. Call to remembrance, verse 32, the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Remember all we went through with bosses and friends and neighbors and relatives about this stupid, crazy religion? We went through that. He says, when you get down to the end and things are tough, remember what you went through to get where you are. Don't forget those things. Remember when you became illuminated, when the lights came on and you understood God, finally. We are, brethren, the Illuminati. There are those who think they have illumination and they're walking in darkness. We are the Illuminati, the enlightened ones. <clears throat> partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Sometimes we saw our brethren in the church being abused by mates, by bosses, whatever. Sometimes it wasn't us directly, sometimes it was. Sometimes it was our friends and neighbors in the church. For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Their leader went to jail. Paul was imprisoned. They took care of him, supported him while he was in prison. So he reminded them of that. And how they generously and helpfully supported him even in prison. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Boldness and confidence in God will be rewarded. For you have need of patience. Wow. You have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Not immediately, but be patient. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live, shall walk by faith, trust, belief. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe the saving of the soul. We believe him. We trust him. We have confidence in him <coughs> that he will provide, that he will protect, that he will bless. If we wait patiently, we know that the right attitude of faith and trust will be rewarded. We'll stop there.